Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. I am on the line with Jen Shong Shaw. Jen Shong is the founder and CEO of AutoX, a company that is doing some interesting things in the autonomous vehicle space. Jen Shong, welcome to This Week in Machine Learning and AI. Thank you, everyone. Great. Why don't we get started by having you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your background and how you got interested in autonomous vehicles and ML and AI more generally? Yeah, sure. Sounds great. I got my PhD from MIT. I spent four years at MIT in the computer science and artificial intelligence lab, trying to get my PhD. My research area is in computer vision and robotics. So I have been working in this space for quite a while. So after I graduated from MIT, I went to Princeton University as a professor. I was the founding director of the computer vision and robotics lab at Princeton University at the Department of Computer Science. Okay, wow. Our research is about trying to make computers seize and enable them to interact with the physical world. Like for example, these days we have image like, uh, from camera or from other sensor, this kind of sensor input, and then we try to pass what's going on and in order to make get an understanding of the physical world, about the traffic situation, about people walking around, and in order to make sense of the world. After that, we can mm-hmm. interact with the physical world. We can design robots. So in our lab, we were designing all kinds of robots, including, of course, like very big self-driving cars, as well as a smaller robot walking around, moving around inside an indoor space and have robot hands to grab objects and so on. So like, for example, our lab participated in the Amazon Picking Challenge last year with a robot arm together with a team of experts from MIT. We have a joint team together and we get pretty good score in the final competition for robot picking challenge as well. Oh, wow. Is this the first time you've participated in the picking challenge? It was the first time, yeah, but also the last time. (laughs) 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 So after that, I started this company, AutoX, working on self-driving car. We focus on, we are being very focused. So right now we focus on trying to make the self-driving car technology really good enough for practical usage. Uh Uh-huh. What I've learned about the company just from some of my background reading is that you are really focused on trying to enable self-driving cars based strictly on vision-based technologies as opposed to LiDAR and some of the other sensors that you know we think of when we think of like the Google self-driving car. Is that the case? Kind of. It's not exactly like that, but uh, it, we are, our solution, I would say, is camera-first solution. So we okay. are not against any other sensor. We are very open to use any sensor. But at the same okay. time, we primarily focus on using camera as our primary sensor. One of the reasons is that uh, there's two reasons. One is the cost factor. Camera, these days, they are very low cost. But uh, other sensors, such as high-resolution LiDAR, they are very expensive. Right. So if we want to make a product that can really be used by every citizen, by everyone, it, it has to be low cost enough so that financially actually makes sense 
to have the self-driving car. Because if a self-driving car is way more expensive than a car plus a, a few full-time driver, then it doesn't really make any sense practically. <laughs> right, right. So for us, we are camera-first solution. That's one thing. The other thing is also technically, it's not just the cost. Technically, a typical camera has very high resolution. Uh, but uh, even a very high-end LiDAR, for example, a very expensive 80,000 US dollar LiDAR, it still have only 64 being vertically. The resolution of a high-end LiDAR mm. is simply too low so that it cannot be used for many situations, such as like a city in city downtown, level 5, urban driving. It's, it has to be able to recognize those subtle details, small objects, complications in order to be able to drive safety. High-end LiDAR simply doesn't really have the enough resolution compared to a camera to do this task. Mm. And you said that LiDAR with the 16, did you say 16 by 16 resolution or what? how did you? A LiDAR, like a lot of LiDAR these days, they are spinning LiDAR. So they have 360 degree coverage horizontally, but vertically, they have a fixed number of beams. The LiDAR I was referring to uh, is the highest end LiDAR is 64, 64. 64, got it. Yeah. Uh, and you said that was, how much did those units cost? Those units cost eighty thousand US dollar now. Eighty thousand, wow. Yeah, eight zero. Yeah, and and it actually is not. The other problem is it's not automotive grade. That means if you keep using the lidar in high temperature, in low temperature, it's going to break in a few months. But for any hardware that I can install on the vehicle, actually people expecting is it has a lifetime of like fifteen years. Okay. And also on your website, you talk about your goal being to try to enable self-driving cars with just $50 worth of cameras. And in fact, you, you've got off-the-shelf webcams in a picture mounted on the hood of a car. I think they're the same one that I have, the Logitech C920. Yes, of course. That's not for final production, but yes, uh, for the initial experiment, we're actually using those uh, Logitech webcam. They're very low cost. But uh, to moving towards production, now we're upgrading our camera with the other camera that is not webcam, but they are actually exceed price level. They are not much okay. more expensive, yeah. Okay. Maybe we can dig into, you know, what are some of the things that you're doing or the ways that you're thinking about the problem that enables you to take this camera-first approach? Yeah, that's a very good question, yeah. One thing that we try to emphasize is camera actually have a lot of potential. Like for example, a lot of people say that then can your camera-based system drive at night? Actually, yes, because a lot of camera these days, the feature is actually much better than even human eyes. So what is actually missing for the camera-based solution is really a very good software. It's very sophisticated, very advanced AI algorithm. That's what is missing to make the camera-based solution reliable. Like for example, human use rely on our two eyes. We don't have a spinning LiDAR on top of our head, shooting lasers <laughs> out, right? <laughs> but we can still drive very safely. <laughs> so right. that, that's why uh, is that what is missing is really about the software. This is where our key innovation comes in. In our company, most of us are software engineers or researchers. We're working in this space trying to develop a very advanced perception system as well as a very robust printing system 
and decision-making system in order to work together side by side to have a robust solution. So maybe I can start with the, the general pipeline of the architecture first. So there are three major steps of autonomous driving in the autonomous driving software step. One is the perception, the other one is the planning and decision making, and the third one is the control. Perception is referring to the part that we take the image and other sensor as input, trying to make capture what is going on in the physical world, get the traffic situation, and try to have the software to understand Okay, this is an object. This is this object is moving, and this is a traffic sign, and this is a traffic light, and have a and get a sense of the world, and that's the perception part. And then after okay. that, there's a decision and making part. Is that given now the computer can understand what's going on in the physical world. Now the computer need to make a decision: should the car stop or should the car go? How fast it should go? How much it should turn? All these are the decision and and planning part. After you make a plan, now finally we need to execute the plan. That's the control part. We need to control the vehicle, actually going to execute the plan and, and behave accordingly. That's the control part. So uh, several, these are the three major building blocks, three major steps in a full-step software for autonomous driving. Okay, perception, planning, and control. Exactly. And there are different schools how to do this. There's one approach that is, okay, is more a traditional Google-based approach or, or Wemo now-based approach. It's try to do every step separately, completely separately. So the perception part will focus on making a very good understanding of the physical world, make sure everyone, everything is perfect. In particular, it's trying to get, I would say, a point cloud level or pixel-wise level. Right? For each image, for each pixel in the image, they try to make a perfect understanding of what the object it is. Like is this pixel beyond to a car or is this pixel beyond to a road surface to have mm-hmm. pixel-wise understanding? And then they given this pixel-wise understanding, they try to have a 3D understanding of the physical world in order to, for, to support that decision-making and planning. That's one typical approach, which we call mediated perception. Mediated perception? Yes. Okay. So there's another approach that is recently populated by NVIDIA. It's trying to do end-to-end, everything end-to-end together. Remember, we are talking with that three steps, that perception, that's planning, that's control. The mm-hmm. NVIDIA approach is trying to fuse everything together. They no longer use a modularized approach. They just put everything together into a huge, gigantic neural network. So they take the sensor, such as the image at the input, and the neural network, just output directly the control, like how much brake you should apply, how much steering torque we, we should apply to the steering hmm. well. So that's the end-to-end approach from NVIDIA. Okay. But both approach have a lot of problems. I, I would say at least some problems. Maybe we can talk about end-to-end first. The end-to-end first, if the problem is everything is working like a black box, it's very difficult to provide input. Like for example, if a computer drives the car, to an intersection. Now you can turn left. Now you can also turn right. But you, right. it's actually very difficult to tell the computer to turn left or right because the computer will look at the, this intersection and it will make up its mind because it's a black box. It will, just, uh, I think it will automatically tell you, okay, I'm going to turn right. I'm going to just turn it. So it's very difficult to control what's going on inside. Like mm. Everything is just like a black box. That's one major drawback of the end-to-end approach. 
If I can jump in, I, it's, that's an issue I've never really thought much about is when you're, you know, when you're building systems that are controlled by neural networks, the, you know, the ability to, for example, override the system or provide user direction, is that, is that a, like a software engineering challenge? Like you have, you have systems that, you know, take the neural network input and take the user input and just prioritize the user input? Or is that like a network, uh, neural network challenge where you're providing the neural network input in and you have to train the system to prefer it? I would say it really depends on the detail. For this kind of end-to-end approach, if everything is to end to end, completely end to end, then mm-hmm. that is not just a software engineering problem. It's really a more research related neural network problem. Because okay. the neural network decides everything for you. You don't really have a choice. Whatever the computer, the neural network decides, that's the result. Okay. But if you are able to use the neural network in a more modularized approach, use the neural mm-hmm. network to do certain tasks and the other part to do uh, another neural network to do certain tasks and then eventually you have some way to combine it together. In that way, the user actually can have more input. Okay. Yeah. So that's what actually, that's a very good question that point out the one drawback of the completely end-to-end approach is that now the computer decides where you are going to go right, <laughs> when you are right. going to stop. That, that's right. obviously not usable for us. Yeah, and the, another problem for the end-to-end approach is uh, the amount of data required to have this system up and running. You can imagine that to couple the space, to train a good neural network, we will need to couple pretty much all the use case, all the potential traffic scenario right. in the training data in order to train the neural network to behave smartly. But this kind of approach is very difficult because you can imagine that even in the same row, in the same Low intersection, for example, or in the same highway merging point, there could be many different kind of traffic, right? There could be different numbers of cars. Those cars could be at different position. Each car have can have different size. Each car could have different color. Each car can have different speed. Each car can have different reaction time. All these are different. And now we need to cover the whole space. We need to have enough training data to brute force all the space. And this mm-hmm. is still assuming at the same like, traffic merging point. Mm-hmm. If you have different role, uh, different different role condition, uh, different different language, uh, different that makes the number of training data requirement is so big that probably even like the whole human society capture data for thousands of years, we may not still have enough data to to <laughs> to train a good neural network to cover all the space. Yeah, that's uh, another typical drawback of the end-to-end approach is the amount of data you require is really gigantic. Mm-hmm. I mean, just as a as maybe a, a counterpoint, I mean the the impression I'm getting from folks that are doing things that are you know more like the end to end approach, Nvidia and Google, is that they're making a lot of progress, right? I'm not getting the impression that they think it's going to take thousands of years to train you know these systems to be operable. That's not really true because the Google approach, they are not end-to-end. We are talking, ah, okay. Yeah, the Google approach is the, the second, uh, the next approach I'm going to describe is the mediatic perception approach. They are the opposite of end-to-end. They cut the end-to-end into many, many different small steps, into so many steps, basically. Okay. And each step, they will do something very, just very, very small step. The mediatic perception approach typically is that take the sensor input and remember the end-to-end is about 
merging the perception, planning, and control all into one single step. Right. Now the mediatic perception is different. They not only they separate them into different steps, even each step they separate into many sub-steps. Like for example, when, when Google's uh, approach, uh, in this kind of approach, they take the image as the input, and then they try to get a pixel-wise recognition of each pixel in the image. Uh-huh. And, and that's not useful for driving. So that, but that's the first step. And, but then after that, they convert this pixel-wise segmentation result into a more 3D understanding of the world. For example, they will get a 3D bounding box, a box to contain each car, each vehicle. You will have a box to contain the car. So some of uh, meaning, the, meaning you've got, you know, from your lidar sensor, you've got a point cloud, and you've got from your image a two-dimensional, you know, view that identified that you know some two-dimensional set of contiguous pixels as a car. They would fuse those two to determine a 3D bounding box for the vehicle based on the both the point cloud and the image data? Yes. Okay. That, that's right. But obviously, you can see about this. It, it, there's a lot of information in this process that we're trying so hard to get. They're not particularly useful. Like for example, the height of the vehicle. We don't really care. Right? I, no matter how tall the vehicle is, we, we don't want to hit them. So there are a lot of <laughs> yeah. So there are a lot of information. Uh, but you want to know how tall the what the clearance is for a bridge that you're trying to cross under yeah, or an exactly. overpass. Sure. So there are certain information that are useful. There are certain information that are not useful for us to drive. Mm-hmm. So that that that's the point exactly we're making. Okay. In Google's approach, is the opposite end to end. Is they try to get everything, no matter it's useful or it's not useful, they all get it out. Okay. And regardless whether it's going to be used or not, I would say this approach is safer, but it's overkill. It's uh, there are a lot of redundancy that we can squeeze out, because every bit of information we extract, there's always a cost. There's a cost of computation on board. If you extract a lot of information that is not useful, it wastes a lot of computation. Mm-hmm. Second is also a lot of engineering and research time because if we spend uh, so, so many engineering effort to get those information and actually they are not being used, it's a waste of uh, time as well. And thirdly, it's a waste of training data because then you get a lot of training data with a lot of heavy annotation in order to get something that is not really useful. So that's another problem. AutoX will count in between. We feel that mediatic perception have some advantage but it may be overkill. We see the different problem of end-to-end perception, end-to-end approach that is completely end-to-end. There are a lot of problems, but the good thing is more simple and more elegant. So we designed something called the degrad perception, which is four in between. Is that we are trying to only get those information that are useful for driving, and we're not, tr- not getting those that are useless for driving. A lot of information that in the mediatic perception approach they get out is useful for other tasks like if i'm a, if i'm a bird i'm flying around definitely i need to know how high is the car right so there are a lot of useful information for other applications but not for autonomous driving so for our approach we try to identify the list of information that are useful for autonomous driving and we ignore those that use this for autonomous driving, and we only focus on spending the computation power, spending an uh, engineering effort, 
and spending money on gathering training data for those useful information. And we call those useful information affordance indicator. A what indicator? Affordance. For example, I can give you an example. This is a terminology dedicated for robotic only. For example, if I give you a mug that you can drink water, a mug, whether the mug you can have a handle, right? Typical mug have a handle. The handle will afford you to grab the handle so that you can raise the mug. So, so affordance means the environment or the object allow you to support you to do certain action, intelligent agents to do certain action. So that's what we call affordance. And in the autonomous driving scenario, it's the same. It's that is the current traffic situation afford you can afford you to do certain tasks. Mm. Like for example, is the traffic now is a traffic jam. That means the affordance of this current traffic situation cannot afford you to speed up your car into like sixty miles per hour. So okay. the so autonomous driving when we actually need is we need to get the affordance. Can the current traffic situation? Can the current road condition? Can the current physical condition allow you? Can afford the autonomous driving car to perform certain action? So this is the list of essential things that we really need for autonomous driving. I guess one question that comes to mind for me is that affordance as a key metric seems. It's the right way to say this. It it, it strikes me as it's like a. It's a planning metric. Like if I have a route that I'm trying to pursue and I want to plan, you know, my next step, whether it's change lane or turn or something like that, does the current situation allow me to do what I want to do? But there's also a requirement that these vehicles be, you know, reactionary to things that happen. And I'm wondering, you know, when I think, just the way affordance sounds like it doesn't ne- it's not necessarily as applicable in, in those types of scenarios. Is that the case? In the narrow sense, maybe yes, but in the general sense, because when we say affordance, it's not a static thing, it's a dynamic thing. Like, for example, in the more computer science language, the computer is making a decision 30 frames per second. That means mm-hmm. every second the, the computer is making 30 decisions. That means the computer is changing their mind quickly, <laughs> very quickly, probably faster than human beings. So if you so think if the about, car oh, cuts me off, then you know I'm still I still need to figure out if I can afford to go straight, for example. Yeah, and exactly. that's happening at thirty frames per second. Yeah. So it, then suddenly the affordance become very reactive because if the situation change a little bit, the affordance change, and then you it, it basically being very reactive. So in the general sense. The affordance is referring to all these negative behavior as well. Okay, thanks. Yeah, uh, following up the, our story is that uh, what we do is we take the existing autonomous driving approach and we squeeze out and we see which part is really essential, which part is which affordance is really necessary for autonomous driving, and we are focusing our energy on making those very reliable so that we can have very robust autonomous driving solution. That's like the basically the unique part of our technology. Hmm. It sounds like then in the mediated perception world, they are are they ultimately trying to get to affordances as well, but they're 
they haven't pruned the the universes of affordances that they care about, or is there not really the concept of affordance there? I believe that's a concept of affordance. That is just like when they designed this system, it probably uh, uh, it was like a decade ago. This kind of system at that time they didn't think too much about this. They uh, spent a lot of time probably focus on other aspects. So, so mm-hmm. the system design was a little bit no longer the latest way, the no longer the most elegant way to do do the technology. Mm-hmm. So I I also believe that maybe in the future when when they they will also think about this, people are smart, right? right. They, they may right. also improve as well. When we're talking about affordances and this direct perception, trying to focus on only the most relevant affordances. Is there an enumeration of those? Is there, you know, are there ten? Are there twenty? Are there hundreds? Does that question make sense, or is it more like, you know, is that more? Is it less a high level concept and more something that's implemented, you know, in the software that's like some vector of, you know, affordances that's just, that's determined on the fly? Yeah, that that makes sense. It does. If you enumerate a list, it's probably less than two hundred. Is one hundred something? Okay. But of course, a different traffic situation is not like you have the whole one hundred. It always there's only a subset that makes sense. So we'll mm-hmm. we'll classify the traffic scenario into different subset, and then each subset we will rely on a smaller number of in, uh, perception indicator, the the affordance indicator, in order to drive the car and to have the car behave appropriately. Okay. And so since you call this direct perception, does that mean that the planning and the control layers of the stack remain the same and they're just getting inputs from this different kind of perception? Or do those also change to accommodate direct perception and affordances? Yes and no. Yes, in the sense that uh, if we just focus on talking about direct perception versus mediated perception, Yes, this part, the difference only on the perception. But there's another dimension of our technology that is different from other companies that we mentioned at, this, uh, at the beginning of the conversation is we are focusing you know, more on using camera okay. instead of LiDAR. The, the mediatic perception, direct perception, they can both apply to LiDAR and camera. But if we are talking about camera, that, that another layer of difficulty because... For camera, because it's, it's not an attic sensor, it's not shooting out laser, the distance measurement is usually more noisier. So there will be more noise in the distance measurement. So we have to model the uncertainty of the, uh, of the object distance, and object speed, and, and so on. And that makes the, the decision-making, planning, and control part have to be more robust as well. Therefore, in our software step, the decision-making and the planning part, we also spend a lot of time making it to take, uh, take the uncertainty from the perception result into account as well in order to have a very robust autonomous driving system. And so when I think of a, a system that is you know, looking at images, trying to calculate distances of, from the car to objects in those images, and then applying another layer of uncertainty that calls to mind, you know, some type of Bayesian type of system. Is that what you're doing under, underneath? It's not exactly Bayesian, but Bayesian is one of the many ways to encode uncertainty. 
but in house we invented invented a lot of other ways to uh, encode uncertainty as well. It's not necessarily fully Bayesian framework because technically Bayesian framework will have some technical requirement of being Bayesian. But at least we still take into the uncertainty into account. And for a lot of other systems, for traditional auto-driving systems, they actually don't take into uncertainty into account that planning and decision-making is completely decisive. Right? Mm-hmm. If this is going to happen, then what will happen is a pure if-else statement only. But for our solution, it's much more robust because we consider the uncertainty of the perception result. We take uncertainty into account. We predict, assuming the perception result is not perfect, and we are able to make use of the uncertainty estimation in order to make a plan that is reliable, even if there are some mistakes happen. So when you talk about the the if if else kinds of constructs, is is that that's specific to mediated perception, like end to end. There, there would just be a neural network that's doing something that doesn't involve if else. But with a mediated perception, you've got some control system that is taking in perception inputs, and the planning is based on if else. Or where, where I guess I don't think of these systems as very if then else. You know, very traditionally rules based as opposed to you know based on trained networks. Yes, you are right. And when I say if else statement, it is referring mostly to mediated perception system. The reason okay. why is that is because I would say ninety nine percent of the companies working in this space they are still using mediated perception. The end to end approach is still a, mostly a research on the research side. Still very difficult to be practically used. Okay. Yeah. And so, at what layer of the stack? Do you find the if else, you know, the the rules based parts of the system in a mediated perception approach? It's usually on the decision making, like after the perception and before the control, the planning and decision making. Usually, uh, people have to manually write down all the rules. Is hundreds, thousands of rules. For example. If a car is kind of encroaching on my lane, you know, from the left, then you know, turn right. Like, what's the what's the granularity of these rules? I guess is what I'm trying to wrap my head around. Do you, can you give me examples there? This granularity of the rule is very detailed. It's not just so general. It's more like yeah. if the car is approaching you from the left lane, you need to estimate the size of the car, the distance of the car. And the speed of the car and the acceleration of the car, in order to for you to decide what to do accordingly. So depends on different speed, different size, different different road structure. Is are we turning left, turning right, or is it on the straight road, or is a you know, on a curvy road? They are all different. So you have to encode all this information, and they have many different combinations in order to encode all these rules. That's why there are so many rules has to have to be written down. <laughs> Right, right. And so it strikes me that, I mean, you, I'm trying to put together these three approaches that you've mentioned end to end, pixel wise, direct perception. It strikes me that you can have a system that is, you know, there are still more degrees of, you know, 
the flexibility of kind of inserting machine learning into different layers of this. Like, for example, you know, with mediated perception, a company could start with a mediated perception system and swap out the planning decision making, you know, with the train neural net, you know, for example, without changing the way the perception works. Is that where does that fall apart? Why aren't people doing that? It's possible. That's possible, but just practically very difficult to make work. Right? And right now, the neural network is still perform very well, mostly on the perception step. For the other like decision making and, and so on, it's very difficult to still have the neural network working. There have been some research, for example, using the deep reinforcement learning, some technique very similar to AlphaGo to, to play chess to do this mm-hmm. task. But it's not at the level of maturity that most people are willing to use for production yet. So it's still mostly in the research stage. It's not not ready ready for a real product. And even non deep learning machine learning models. I guess the the what I'm trying to wrap my head around is intuitively, you know, after you've gone through the perception step, you've got you know, a set of, you know, a set of features that represent what you've learned about, you know, 3D space around the vehicle, the vehicle dynamics and all that. Is it that the, you know, the dimensionality of that is too high for either traditional machine learning models or deep learning? Or is it something else that is really the the main challenge? The difficulty is not about the dimension or the size of the data. The difficulty is about the space is not a fixed mapping. Let's put it this way. For neural network, a lot of traditional machine learning, such as the very famous support vector machine, what they are trying to learn is a function. You give me some right. in- input. I have a mapping from uh, mm-hmm. to, to, the, to the output. So it's a function. You give me, you change your input, my output change, and right. so on. But when we talk about robotics or when we talk about autonomous driving specifically, it's very didactic. What is going to happen in the next step depends on what I, what I do now. Mm, like if mm-hmm. I speed up my car, suddenly the car in front of me may get scared, may me speed up as well. And things are not predictable. It's not just me is changing. It's not a fixed mapping. Is it that right. everything going to happen in the future depends on what's happening now. Okay. So there's a, a, a sequential causality in between that makes a fixed mapping, like mapping a function, a function f, mapping x, f to get y. That's very, not very, not really applicable to this kind of application. So okay. that's why people have to invent something new, more fancier stuff, <laughs> try to do this. Okay, okay. So tell me a little bit about the progress you've made is how far along are you? Yeah, we are a young company. We get started uh, 13 months ago, just a little bit over a year. But uh, in, the, uh, in the past year, we already made a lot of progress. So people from our website, autox.ai, you may see that our car already sold some initial prototype driving on the street, doing a lot of demos, can drive safety using camera to achieve almost all the driving behavior that we require. So uh, we are moving very fast. Uh, our plan is to, in, in a very near future, we can really have a product, make the technology so perfect, good enough 
to have a real product out to the market very soon. And we're working with a lot of partners, several major partners, such as car manufacturers, logistic companies, try to commercialize our product as soon as possible. Mm-hmm. And is the, it doesn't sound like the model is one like, like I think what Kama is trying to do that to have like an aftermarket kit that you can just deploy on your, your vehicle. Yeah, we are not interested in aftermarket at all because aftermarket, uh, in some sense, is almost not doable. There are two aspects that make it not doable. The first is the because we need to set up the camera, we need to set up the computer. The modification of the car is a lot, quite right. a lot. And then most people simply do not have the skill set, or they just don't want that car look really ugly with a lot of <laughs> the things dangling around. Yeah, it's just not very yeah. safe as well. What happens if the camera falls? to the ground and then uh, while you're autonomous driving it's just simply very, not very <laughs> easy to do that yeah and yeah. there's also an even more fundamental problem that nobody point out is that most vehicle available today on the market already get acquired already get bought by the customers they do not support drive by wire that means the mm. steering wheel the brake the, uh, the, the throttle the acceleration they all have to control manually mechanically Right. There's no way, no elegant way, no easy way that you can have a computer to control that for you. Okay. If that's the case, most people, when they have this aftermarket kit, they still cannot control their car. Mm. Okay. Like for example, if you look at Commodore AI's uh, modification of the car, if you read mm-hmm. the details, it actually cannot control the car under very low speed. It can only con- take over the control of the car, for example, about 20 or 25 miles per hour. If you are driving at 10 miles per hour, the computer cannot control it. So there's always some certain limitation for those cars hmm. for aftermarket retrofitting. So that's why we are focused on, at our company, we put safety as the primary goal for deployment or any autonomous driving technology. So mm-hmm. we, are, we not only the software have to be smart enough to be safe, but the hardware, it has to be good enough for, to provide redundancy as well as provide very solid hardware that can run at least a few years, I would say, for autonomous driving. Instead of a drive for three days and the camera fall on the ground, <laughs> and then, then what happened now? <laughs> yeah. Right, right. Okay, great, great. Well, I really enjoyed this discussion and learned a ton about the, the autonomous vehicle space in general, not to mention what AutoX is doing. Is there anything else that um, you'd like to share with us? Yeah, sure. We, like I mentioned, we're a very young company and we're still quickly growing. Right now, we have a member of 30 and we're trying to grow to at least 100 in a year. So we're, we're actively recruiting. So if the audience are interested in experiencing or also working together, the cutting edge research to really make a difference to the world, please come to find us. You can visit our website at www.autox.ai to learn more about our opening. Thank you very much. Awesome. Awesome. Thanks, Jin Xiong. I really appreciate it. And it was great chatting with you. Okay, great. Likewise. Thank you very much. All right, everyone. That's our show for today. Thanks so much for listening and for your continued feedback and support. For more information on Jin Xiong or any of the topics covered in this episode, head on over to twimlai.com slash talk slash 58. To follow along with the Autonomous Vehicle series, 
visit twimlai.com slash AV2017. Of course, please, please, please send us any questions or comments you may have for us or our guests via Twitter at TwimlAI or directly to me at Sam Charrington or leave a comment on the show notes page. Also, be sure to check out our last show, Twimmel Talk number 57 with Mighty AI co-founder and CEO Darren Nakuda at twimlai.com slash talk slash five seven. And check out some of the interesting things they're working on at www.mty.ai. Thanks again for listening and catch you next time.